You are listening to the weekly sermon from Elevation Community Church in Blanchester, Ohio. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit myelevationcc.org. My name is Brian Warwick, and I'm one of the elders here at Elevation Community Church. For the last couple Sundays, we've been talking about this God's Church and our response topic. A lot of the things we think of when we are saying we are God's church centers around identity, maybe what we do, what we look like, who we are. And so the emphasis for this entire series is helping us to understand what God has called us to be and what he's been saying to us through his word. The last two Sundays, Kevin has done an awesome job at going through and giving context to the particular section of Scripture we're reading, the book of Ephesians, which is a letter from Paul the Apostle to the church that's in Ephesus. This church was mixed up of a bunch of folks, people from different backgrounds. And you'll notice, if you've been here the last two weeks or even what we'll go through today, he's speaking to folks called Gentiles, folks that are not of Hebrew descent, probably someone like myself and who have received Christ, who are now part of the church, and he's giving them so much information, so much context to the promise and the covenants and the inheritance that helps you know who you are as followers of Christ. So much so that as I prayed and prepared for this Sunday and asked God to give me words to say, he threw at me so many scriptures, and I said, God, I've got about 40 minutes. So which ones would you like me to focus on? And he does an awesome job at that. But in particular, let's take a look back at least in chapter 2 or second part of this. We look at a couple of things that Paul was saying, and they really start to lay the groundwork for our understanding of who we are. First in chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of work, so that no one can boast. Salvation is something given to us because of God's grace. Grace means giving you something you didn't deserve, right? Mercy is the opposite, not giving you something that you probably do deserve. But grace saved through faith. So when we believe, we receive Christ, that's how we become part of God's family. We get part of at least the understanding of, wow, what God's gift is for us, salvation. It's beautiful. And we can't boast about it. Nothing that I do, nothing that you do, anyone, it doesn't matter what genealogy you're a part of. It doesn't matter how many great things you've done or how many rules you followed. It's a gift. If I walked over here and I handed Anita a $50 bill and said, this is my gift, she can take it or not. It's up to her. Would you take it? Of course, it has value. Salvation has value, eternal value. The second one in chapter 2 is verse 12. He's talking specifically to those who are not of Hebrew descent. These are people who are Gentiles. They don't know a lot about history necessarily from Old Testament scriptures. They wouldn't know a lot of that necessarily. And says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from who? the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is key to our identity as God's church. 
This is key to what God is speaking to us today. Commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth is like citizenship. It is a nation. It is a people group. Israel in the Bible, when we read, is a person and a people group. It is also a place. But when God is speaking here, when Paul is speaking here, and as you're going to see in other scriptures, he's talking about a people group. At first talking about one person and then a people group. And then how all this is fulfilled in Christ. See, this word covenant is very important, though, as we get into the scriptures, because covenant is something different than a promise. If I make a promise to my children that I will love them no matter what they do, it's all on me to keep that promise. It's all on me. But a covenant is an arrangement. And as we look at this, end of chapter 2, Paul says, We are all being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so God has given salvation. He's talking about a covenant that he's made from before, and now we're all being built together. That's that theme, that God is giving us all the opportunity to be a part of his family. But before we get into that, let's read this first part. When we understand this word covenant, before we get into the details of what that looks like, We'll read the first part of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of my stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how this mystery, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by his spirit. The mystery is that, so this is the part, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Amen. That is awesome. Paul is saying this is the mystery. The mystery is All the covenants and promises from before, when you believe in Jesus Christ, irrespective of your genealogy or your background, you are now fellow heirs. You inherit something. You are now part of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. In Romans 8, oh, let me preface this. If you're a note taker and you like to like write notes, I will do my best to make sure I take my time and don't go too fast. But these are really good scripture references and cross-references of what God is talking about through Paul. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a term like daddy. When your little one calls you daddy, it eventually changes to dad. But, you know, it's still very personal. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may glorify with him, be glorified with him. Paul is saying the same thing to the church in Rome that he's saying here, that we are joint heirs with Christ. 
This mystery is that everything that was promised throughout history that I knew nothing about, that maybe you knew nothing about, certainly these Gentiles probably didn't know a lot about, are now receiving that. Well, what is this mystery? What is this promise? What are these covenants? Well, let's look at what a covenant is. A covenant, as I said, is a binding agreement. It's not like a promise, which is one way. A covenant is cyclical. Maybe it's one person to another. Maybe it's one person to a group of people. Maybe it's a group of people to another group of people. There is an arrangement. Think of like a marriage. It's a covenant. I make a covenant to my wife to be faithful, to be loving. She does the same. If that gets out of balance, the covenant begins to shake right? It's different. God makes a lot of promises and covenants throughout Scripture. But five of them really stand out. Five of them are what you might hear as being called primary covenants. And the question comes in, why then to make all these covenants to bring about his promise? Well, what's the promise? I mean, we heard Paul talk about it, covenants of promise, We said we're joint heirs of something. We inherit something. What do we inherit? In Genesis 3.15, God is talking to the serpent. Adam and Eve just broke a covenant. And God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. He is talking about the Messiah. This is the first time we hear about this promise, that God is going to send someone to take back the authority that he just took from mankind. Adam and Eve gave up their authority. They had dominion over all the earth. Satan tricked them. They fell into deception. They were tempted. They gave in, however you want to say it. Covenant was broken. So God makes this promise. He says, I'm going to bring someone who's going to take the authority back. So let's take a look at this timeline. I didn't go into great detail about dates and things. Again, I only had so much time as I go through this. Oops, sorry. As I went through this, it became very clear that I didn't know enough about this. God was showing so many things about this covenant. He began to go through and show me the promise was I'm bringing the Messiah. The covenants throughout time ensured this happen. The first one is with Noah. Between Adam and Noah, things got pretty bad, pretty bad. Mankind was evil, so evil that God said, I'm going to do a reset. I'm going to destroy everything on the earth with water. Except for you, Noah, and your family. Imagine thousands of people on the earth at that time, and you're the only family who's still faithful to God. How bad must it have been? I mean, God is not surprised by anything, and yet he does this reset. And so Noah and his family get on the ark. You may have heard the story. I think E-Kids director Amanda would be very happy that I'm doing a timeline, because guess what? They're doing a timeline, too, as they go through the Bible. But he says, when you get off the ark, I want you to look in the sky. He gets off the ark. After 40 days and 40 nights, the waters recede. They step out, and in the sky, they see something they've never seen. And it is this colorful bow, light traveling through water. It is a prism, and it is beautiful. 
And God says to him in Genesis 9, chapter 11, or verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That symbol, when you see it today, is the same symbol of promise. I don't care what anybody else says it is. That is a covenant promise symbol. And it's amazing because remember the first promise? I'm going to bring a Messiah. Well, you can't bring a Messiah if everybody dies. Well, not everybody died. But it was still so bad, God still made a way. So then we move forward and we go to Abraham. But in between Noah and Abraham, what I did not remember was that Noah lived to be 950 years old. Wow. And for 39 years of that, Noah knew Abram before his name had changed. They were nine descendants apart. I thought that was just kind of nice, interesting. That's a freebie for you, if you're into that. In Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3, he's speaking to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then he tells them in chapter 15 that if you can count all the stars, you can count your descendants. So he's making a way for his promise to come through. Everyone's going to be blessed with you. Remember, notice that thing he says, that all the earth is mine, a special treasure above all people. And he says, I will bless those that bless you. All the families of the earth will be blessed. All of them. I thought that was really cool. Because I kept thinking it was just Abraham's family that are going to be blessed through Abraham. No. All the families of the earth. That's his promise. Move forward a little bit in between these two covenants, between Abraham and the Mosaic covenant. Abraham has two sons. He has two boys. One's an Ishmael and one's an Isaac. If you know the background or if you don't, I'm going to tell you at least a quick summary. God makes a promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. His wife, Sarah, could not have children. She was barren. But he said, I'm going to have a, you're going to have a child. Time went by, about 25 years, and they still hadn't had a child. And Sarah says, you know what, Abraham, I'm not getting pregnant. And so why don't you sleep with my maidservant? and have a child. Talk about a covenant breaker today, right? To my beautiful wife who so rightly pointed out Abraham could have said no. She's right. Not wrong. We look at that, we think, Sarah's crazy. Abraham's also probably not too great at this point. So they have this child, Ishmael. If you know history and how that goes, that line of descendants is where Islam comes from. They look as Ishmael as the kind of father, if you will, within the hierarchy from Abraham. They have another child. Isaac comes along. And Isaac has two sons as well. Isaac has Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn. And that day, the firstborn inherited everything. Remember that word, inheritance? The firstborn's going to get the blessing. But God says, nope, the second one's going to get the blessing. Jacob is holding on as they're being born. Esau comes out first. Jacob is holding on to his heel. Jacob means usurper, one who tries to take from. He comes out as if a symbolic gesture from God because 
He controls the way we're born. And he comes out, and at that point, as they grow up together, at one point, Jacob convinces Esau to give him his birthright, the blessing, for a bowl of stew. Now, I am convinced that Esau probably didn't think he was going to lose the birthright, the inheritance. He's thinking, yeah, whatever, give me the stew. Sure, sure, he had the birthright. When dad gets old, he's going to give me it anyway. I'm going to get the inheritance. But that doesn't happen. God's purpose and plan is still going to happen. Whether we're involved or not, God's going to do it. So Jacob and his mother hatch a plan when Isaac is dying and blind, and he pretends to be Esau. And Isaac's there, and he gives Jacob the blessing. Esau finds out, and guess what? He's not real happy. They hate each other. Jacob runs away. He fights with God and wrestles him with him during the middle of the night, all the way into the morning while he's on the run, and God changes his name. He says, give me a new name. He calls him Israel. The first time we see that mentioned in Scripture. Israel is a person. And Israel has... 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those being Joseph, who gets thrown into slavery because his brothers hate him, because guess what? He's favored. You ever been that child who, you know, you're the spoiled one, and the other siblings don't like you a whole lot? Do they ever sell you into slavery? I hope not. Um, But that happened. So Joseph goes into Egypt, and now they're in Egypt for a while, and as time passes, a new pharaoh becomes in charge, and he doesn't like the Israelites, puts them into slavery, hundreds of years, and then they cry out, and he says, I'm going to send somebody to set you free, to get you out of Egypt. He sends Moses and his brother Aaron. They are now set free. And by then, they're a pretty large group of people. Israel is huge now. And as they go through the wilderness, God now makes the next covenant. So you see, all this is happening. And the reason God's showing us this stuff is because of that original promise that Paul was talking about. So now Moses is there, and in the wilderness, God speaks to Moses in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments and my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. This covenant had conditions, and it defined blessings and curses based on obedience or disobedience. And there's a reason for that. If you look in Deuteronomy 28 through 29, there's a whole list of blessings and curses based on obedience, if Israel was obedient. Consequences, you might want to call them, but maybe a little severe, more severe so than just, you know, you get grounded. This is with God. So... He makes this covenant. After Moses comes Joshua. They're in the promised land. And guess what? Israel strays from God. Israel begins to break the covenant. In fact, in between Moses and David, there's this book in the Bible called the book of Judges. It's during a time when Israel really didn't have a good leader. And so God sends judges to come and kind of bring them back, kind of corral them a bit, if you will, make sure their focus is right. And this particular verse is repeated throughout the entire book multiple times, Judges 11.1 as one of the references. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If you look through Judges, 
The beginning of each these different sections, that exact same phrase is there. So now they're disobedient. Guess what they're breaking? The covenant. Is that going to stop God's plan? No. His promise is still going to come. So at some point they say, we want a king like every other nation. I know we were worshiping false gods, and I know we were sacrificing our children, but you know what, God? We want to be like other nations anyway. I know you've set us free before and all that great stuff. Amazing how we as human beings forget what God's done. God's promise. And so they say, we want another king. And so he's like, I'm your king. No, no, no. We want a human king that we can look at and we can be like, woohoo, he's the best. Here comes Saul. They pick Saul. Saul doesn't turn out so well. He starts off okay, but then he starts getting into sorcery and all these kind of things. And God's like, I'm still going to do my promise. I'm still committed to mankind. And so he picks the next king. He picks David. And he makes a covenant with David. After the people disobeyed and strayed from God, he makes a covenant to bring them back. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. This is coming from Nathan, the prophet. When your days are complete, speaking to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you as up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. This is key. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David died. Solomon, who built the temple, his son died. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Another covenant with David to say, my promise to bring a Messiah is still going to happen irrespective of how many covenants you break with me, irrespective of how many mistakes you make, I still love mankind. And I'm going to provide a way for salvation. So he says his kingdom, his throne will be forever. A throne represents authority. There is Christmas coming up soon, not to freak you out if you haven't bought gifts yet, but there is a conversation that the angel has with Mary that reaches back to this exact prophecy. It's the angel speaking to her in Luke 1, 30-33. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall... Thank you, Jesus. Sometimes when you say his name, it brings up emotion, right? And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. Mm, sorry, excuse me. And the Lord God will give him a throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Mary hears the same covenant. The same promise that Nathan spoke to David so many years before. God's promise is coming. And so he makes this covenant with David to say, it's your throne. It's not about you. It's about me. It's not about your son Solomon who's going to build the temple. It's about me and my son. Hmm. 
So he brings this revelation to David, and David, of course, continues to do as best he can as a human. Solomon doesn't do a lot better, and the kings begin to, after him, begin to live evil ways again. My family has a game at home called the Kings of Israel. It's a wonderful board game. You work together, you're all prophets, trying to stop the idols to being built in Israel and all of that. There is a list of kings all throughout history with biblical references of when they came into power and what the time frame was. About 12, maybe 14 kings listed. I apologize for not remembering exact numbers. Out of all of that, three or four of them are good kings. The rest of them, horrible. So they're breaking this covenant. And this one, if you look at the degree of relevance in these different covenants... Abraham, all the world is going to be blessed. Noah, I'm not going to kill everybody again with water. Abraham, all of you will be blessed. Moses, you are my people. David, the Messiah is coming to sit on the throne through your line. And they keep growing in significance. They're still all connected. They go into exile. Israel, Judah, which was one of the 12 tribes, but in history they separated. They actually fought against each other in war. Excuse me. The Edomites, all that group of people, all those from Abraham basically go into exile, Babylon and Assyrian exile, and they rejected God, rejected his covenant with them. So God makes a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And with the house of Judah. Notice how he mentions both. Not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day that I took them from the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant I will make now with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people no more This is where God really says something to us that I did not notice before. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. This does not say that some people will know God. It says all people will know God. I won't have to go to my neighbor and say, let me tell you about Yahweh. Let me tell you about Jehovah. Instead, he's specifically saying, in this new covenant, it's going to be fulfilled that we will all have the opportunity to know him. That's this new covenant. This promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We see this in Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. As though, as, as it is through him we receive forgiveness for our sins and are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who enables us to seek after things of God. So we look at this next part of chapter 3 and what we just read, I hope it's starting to make a little more sense because it did for me. He's saying the mystery of this covenant, the mystery of this promise, this covenant that we weren't a part of, that we weren't aware of, 
The whole point was to bring Jesus Christ here to fulfill his promise. So he made covenants along the way, irrespective of how bad Israel or anybody else got, irrespective of Sarah and Adam having another child, irrespective of the evil of the day, God was still going to do it. He was still bringing Christ. Christ. Mm. So now we look at the next part. Makes a little more sense. He's talking to the Gentiles. He's talking to us. This is the promise. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, for was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may now be known, made known to the rulers and authorities of heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Look at that second part, the second half of that. This is talking to us. We talked about our purpose, God's church, right? According to his eternal purpose. So it says, the plan of the mystery, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, which is awesome, this was according to his eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus. All of that promise from before, I'm bringing a Messiah. All the covenants that we just read about are all pointing to the fact that the mystery was hidden for ages. It was talked about, there was prophecies, but it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all of that. He fulfilled the covenant. He fulfilled the promise. He is the promise. And it's his eternal purpose. So how then does this apply to us now? What does that mean for us as the church other than to be his followers and to receive this mystery and this promise? For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. Hmm. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being. Hmm. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. Here's the hard part. If he tells you you need strength, it's about to get hard. You need strength to comprehend with all the saints, all the believers, this blows me away, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, I love this last part, to him is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations 
forever and ever. Amen. So, I know it was a lot. Trust me, it was a lot trying to grasp this. God makes a promise. Paul is talking to us. He's saying there is a mystery to all of this. Who are you as the church? This promise comes. Jesus comes along. The covenants are made. He establishes that throughout history. And yet so many people don't know about it. They don't see it coming. They're maybe not part of that bloodline. They have no idea. And Paul's like, let me explain to you in a letter the significance of this mystery. It's right there. What is the purpose? What is our purpose as the body of Christ then to all of this? Is that we might be able to understand or comprehend all of this, the love of God, and be filled with the fullness of God. When you go out in your day, when you're at work or you're at home or you're at the grocery store or you're at your small group or you're serving somewhere or you're just alone, you are filled with the fullness of God when you follow Jesus Christ. You can be filled with that all the time. You may have heard it before. We do leak. We do. The great thing is, is that Jesus Christ fulfilled exactly what God promised and said he would do. So it begs the question then, According to what we read, according to the promise, according to the covenants, according to who we are, who then are the people of God? When someone says to you, who are God's people? It is those who accept and follow Jesus Christ. He fulfilled everything. He fulfilled every promise, covenant that God said. Because guess what? This whole thing, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the promise. Go forward from here. Go all the way to Revelation. It's all about Jesus. Because all authority has been given to him in heaven on earth and on earth. In fact, a couple more verses that won't be up there. This is Jesus speaking. In John 14, 6, if the band could please come up. Thank you. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. I checked it out in the Greek. The word for no one means no one. No one. Why do you think so many people were so angry with Jesus? Why do you think when he was sitting with his disciples... And he says, the world's going to hate you, but don't worry, they hated me first. Because he is the only way to the Father. And in Matthew 12, verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. He was teaching, and the disciples and folks came up and said, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside. And he's like, whoever does... The will of my Father is my family. We as the church, our purpose is do the will of the Father. Again, I know this was a lot. I pray God spoke to you. I really do. Because we need to understand the mystery that we inherited. The promise that we got. The thing that none of us were even a part of yet until Jesus showed up. And that changes the perspective for who we are as the church. 
It doesn't matter what denomination you go to. Do you follow Jesus? Do you follow the will of the Father? Are you spending time with him in that way? Hmm. We're supposed to be like Jesus. So what was Jesus like? Who did he go to? He didn't go to the Jewish religious leaders to try to convert them. He didn't go to the places where full of wealth, right, for influence. He went to people who were outcasts. He went to people who didn't know him. I need to ask myself, am I going to go to people who don't know him and show him? It has nothing to do with genealogy. It has nothing to do with a location on a map. It has everything to do with whether or not you follow Jesus. That makes you the people of God. One of the folks in our Thursday night group brought up an interesting reference, a powerful one, because God brought it up in my mind this week as I was praying, and he said, remember the woman at the well? I was like, what's that have to do with covenant? What's that have to do with promise? God, I don't understand. And then Thursday night, someone brings it up and says, isn't it interesting how he dialogued with this woman at the well. I'm sorry, again, I apologize. When he's dialoguing with this woman at the well, she goes in the middle of the day because she can't go in the morning when the other women are getting water. Why? Because she's an outcast. Not only that, she's a Samaritan. The Jews and the Gentiles both hated Samaritans because they were a mix. One parent was Jewish and one was not. And God went to her and offered her Everlasting water, everlasting life. It would be remiss um, as I begin to close out if I didn't say this because I know God is probably dealing with a lot of you and he's dealing with me on this and he's, he's been speaking to us elders. There's a lot of stuff going on right now in the world. There's a lot of turmoil, a lot of tragedy, not just locally in our own country but overseas. Things happening in war. Israel, Hamas, Ukraine, Russia. There's a lot of it. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves as a church, what's our role? What are we responsible to do? We don't live there. I certainly can't take the news at its word. It's going to show me whatever it wants to show me. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to pray for? supposed to pray for this place but we're all the people of God what are we supposed to pray for Jesus who did you go to he went to those who were caught in the middle he went to those who were outcasts he went to those who did not have anything to do with the conflict people who were just sitting there in the middle and whenever I see the things going on I always wonder, God, what do you want me to pray for? I would encourage you to do the same. Here's what he tells me. I pray I don't break up. There are so many innocent people in between every conflict. 
there are so many children that have nothing to do with this fight. If you pray for anyone, pray for them. Pray for God's will to be done. Pray for the innocent who are caught in the middle, the outcasts, the ones who are not part of some government goal, not part of some military approach. Jesus went to people who needed hope. Pray for them. Lord God, thank you for your word. I pray you spoke and it wasn't me. I pray you spoke to us about this wonderful promise we have inherited, this covenant you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ, that we are now adopted into the family of God. And I pray that you'd watch over us and guide us as a church in Blanchester, Ohio, this little town that you, because of your love, keep an eye on. And you are moving, and I pray you are glorified by everything that happens, that your will would be done. Pray the angels around about all of us, your hand upon every family here, that no weapon formed against any one of us would ever prosper. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our weekly sermon. If you'd like to go deeper with another resource from our church, please check out our weekly Impact Bible Study podcast as well. Both of our podcasts are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud.